Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow, together with other mothers, when autumn comes. When I first went to Diane with this crazy idea of a podcast, I thought she was going to say no. My concept was that we were going to talk to moms, with moms, for moms, about life as special needs and medical parents. What it somehow evolved into is this candid conversations full of love and hope with people who work hand in hand with medical and special needs moms. Today, I'm so excited to introduce you to a guest who is a mom, but she's not here as a mom. She is here to talk about her life as a pediatric geneticist. She is one of my kids' favorite doctors. She is one of my favorite doctors. And it's basically like a candid conversation that you as a mom or you as a patient just don't get to have in their clinic. We want to know what it's like from her perspective when she has to give us bad news. We want to know why she became a geneticist and what makes her wheels turn. We want to know if she really thinks Lorelai and Benji are the cutest patients she's ever seen. Well, today we are welcoming Dr. Sammy Vergano, and she's waving, but we're not recording the screen. We're just recording our voices. So, (laughs) Sammy, you want to introduce yourself? Hi. (laughs) Hi. Um, This is so strange. Um, I am Samantha Vergano. I am the Division Director of Medical Genetics and Metabolism at Children's Hospital of the King's Daughters, which is our children's hospital here in Norfolk, Virginia. And I take care of Susan's two gorgeous children. And a bunch of other kids. And a bunch of other kids. (laughs) I don't have just two kids in my clinic. And I love my job. And I also love Judge Judy. And I also love cats. (laughs) And running. So you have and tried I, to get sometimes me I don't onto the it. running bandwagon. I do it right. Susan and I are now running buddies. Well, we were pre-COVID. We were, right. So what what made you, who wakes up and says, I want to be a geneticist? Like, what what brought you here? Well, I didn't, I didn't wake up from, I probably came to that decision sometime midday uh, during whichever day it midday. was. Midday. Right. I don't think anything <laughs> when I wake up. Well, so, so what a medical geneticist does is it is a physician usually trained in peds, although can be trained in OB or adult medicine who takes care of children and or adults with heritable forms of diseases. So anything from cancer predisposition syndromes to chromosome changes to 
metabolic disorders to mitochondrial disease to things that are typically pretty rare. You may have already mentioned this on a one of the podcasts, but our mascot is sort of the zebra because there's an adage in medicine that says, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, meaning common things are common. So if you heard hoofbeats on the great safari, you would think it was a horse, but we tend to think of the things that are rarer, which is which are the zebras. So that's sort of like our shtick. I guess in terms of why I why it interested me, I did a rotation as a fourth year medical student at my medical school with some OBs and genetic counselors. And I found that very interesting. I liked the counseling aspect of what they did. And then when I was a resident, I had a couple patients that had rare diseases. And I found that I really enjoyed reading about it more than some of the other systems that you learn about in med school and residency. Although I I will say, I feel like the reason I went into it then is totally different than the reason that I love it now. And I think it's primarily because I've been able to form relationships with my families. It's not like I just loved it as a science. I do love it as a science, but it is so logarithmically rewarded me since kind of being in attending and, and doing this. And so when I talk to med students about you know, going into genetics, which very few people do, I try and not market it, but there is a a deeply rewarding aspect of the relationships that you build, I think more so than certainly things like ER or surgery, where you maybe don't have long-term relationships with those families. But being with a family when their child has a life-threatening or completely terminal illness and being with the family while and after the child has died is an exceptionally special thing to do. And that's also one of the things that I think makes this sad, but, but again, immensely rewarding things that I will never forget as long as I live kind of thing. Sammy, can you describe the difference between a geneticist and a genetic counselor? So geneticists and genetic counselors can do the counseling. All that refers to is just talking to people about the disease. Genetic counselors are typically master's level individuals who go through two years of postgraduate, post-undergraduate schooling. And they learn a lot about what we know in genetics. Um, The primary difference is that MD geneticists have an MD, and then they typically have um, six or more additional years after medical school of additional training. So we do physical exams, we order labs, we prescribe medications, which is not within the purview of the genetic counselor, although the genetic counselor can do a lot of things that we can't, and they're like exceedingly vital to our existence as professionals. As a parent in your clinic, and you're going to probably think, how could she not understand this? She's been doing this for years, but why does the counselor come in before you? Do they come in and take notes and then walk out and tell you? Well, not so much that because a lot of the stuff we go, when we go back in, we hear some of the same things and we ask some of the same questions. It's kind of like a prep ahead of the clinic visit. They will look through the chart and glean important pieces of information. They will go in and then depending on what we're seeing the family for, they may do some level of counseling before I walk in. If it's a follow-up visit, they may just give me updates. The counselors will also um, do a lot of sort of like emotional surveillance, like seeing where the family is with things, seeing what their expectations are for the visit, feeling them out in terms of, is this very upsetting to them? Are they nervous about the appointment? Are they angry about something? Not not that we also don't discern that, but it um, just gives us an idea of kind of what to expect when we walk in. Hey, we're going to take a quick pause. Are you a medical or special needs mom looking for a community of people who just get it? 
you are invited to join us in the 4AM Mom Club. Yep, that's the name of our bonus content, but it is also the name of our community. Moms just like you and me, we laugh together, cry together, and we support each other through this crazy life. You can learn more at whenautumncomes.com. Go to the top of the page and click on the button that says 4AM Mom Club. See y'all there. Can I ask the question, how do you prep yourself for those specifics of how parents, you know, you have the genetic counselor come in and there are parents that are not ready for a diagnosis. They're angry. They're super sad. They're They're scared. They're scared. Maybe their head's in the sand. Maybe they're completely in denial. Do you have to, does it just come naturally or do you have to mentally prepare yourself for matching one of those parents? And then how do you go about delivering this news? Well, so it doesn't come naturally. I think that's partly what training is for. It took me a while to come to the understanding that it's the disease that sucks. It's not me that sucks as the person delivering the news of the disease. Because in the beginning, I think most, I must think most trainees and most young doctors, when you're trying to have empathy, you internalize that a lot. And it is hard because you want to fix things and you can't. I would say in terms of do I prepare, I I think almost I don't prepare because I need to be there in the moment with the family and understand where they're coming from. So I tried not to go in with any preconceived notions about where they are in this journey. And so I let them be however they are, and that's okay. I've now learned that there's a difference between compassion and empathy. You can be empathic, but you can't internalize it to the point where it paralyzes you and you can't proceed forward. So I mean, it's not like saying I ignored the horrible stuff, but to a certain extent, I have to move on with them to help them. And so that's, I think, where it's probably more along the lines of compassion versus empathy, which is totally hard and not something that I've mastered at all, but something that I think comes with practice. That's why they call it practicing medicine. It's not anything that anyone, I think, knows how to do. And is it pretty standard, like the reactions that come? the moment that you have to tell these people a diagnosis, do you get standard reactions and responses or are they kind of all over the board? They're pretty all over the board. I couldn't walk into a room and predict where someone's going to be at that moment. I mean, I can think back on families and realize that's how they were reacting. And sometimes even in the moment, you don't really think about it that way. You just kind of float with them in the river, wherever they're at. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't, you can't force it one way or the other. So you just have to go wherever the conversation takes you. If they want to be angry, great. If they want to be in denial, great. Everybody does that. That's like not a bad thing at all. If they want to be actually totally okay in the moment, that's also okay. So kind of like, uh, it's a little bit like fencing. You can't predict, like you just have to sort of go with the, you know, with the mood. Yeah, totally. I remember our conversation when you were like, possibly the 31st diagnosed case. And I was like, oh, at this hospital? I remember you saying you're like, no. And I was like, oh, in Virginia? No. Yeah. <laughs> like, I feel like looking back, I don't think I took in the words. I felt like they were just kind of bouncing off of me. And I feel like that's kind of a common talking to other folks. I mean, you're hitting us with a truck. And um yeah. We're trying to take in all of it. Right. I don't, I I really focus on not expecting anyone to understand or remember 
anything about what I said. Like I wholly expect him to come back the next day and be like, can we talk? (laughs) You're looking at me and your mouth is moving, but then I don't remember anything. Totally a hundred. I mean, I have been through that. I've been told really horrible news and I know that it didn't, I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. what are you going to do? That's your body's natural reaction. Yeah. So I, I encourage people to write down stuff while we're talking if they can, but that's why we come back. Yeah, there's no shame in that. So that's totally okay. Through the podcast, we've talked a bit about how Diane's daughter, Sayla, doesn't technically have an official mitochondrial disease diagnosis. Diane, I'm kind of speaking on your behalf, but Diane has this gut-wrenching, emotional, I want to throw up every time she has to go see the geneticist. Mm-hmm. In a weird way, because she's super comforting at the same time. Like mm-hmm. this woman holds like every ounce of my feeling right in her doctor's office because it's like, oh, I don't want to hear anymore, but I know that I'm in the best possible place that I could be in. Yeah. And I don't know where I was going with that question, statement, whatever, but like the idea of you have moms coming to you who even, I mean, Diane's been doing this for almost what, five years and we're not new moms, but we still feel that I mean, I don't because I talk to you way too often, but most people probably feel blah when they see you, which I mean that in the nicest way possible. I I get that. I take zero offense to it whatsoever. I mean, when I say I get it, I don't mean that I get it as a mom. I definitely don't get it as a mom. I get it as a professional who has heard countless families express the same types of emotions. And so it's completely... I completely expect that nothing kind of takes me off guard nowadays. And that's okay. Everybody is their own. Everyone's going to react differently. And like I said, there's no cookie cutter. Just sort of talk it out. But what a very intricate place that you sit in to hold so much knowledge about somebody's child Mm. and yet know that it can bring so much peace, hurt, Mm -hmm. fear. When you talked about kind of standing in a river with a family, like... That's such a crazy position to be in. I mean, it's really probably rewarding, but it's, you probably have to, you know, really think and be strategic about how you deliver news and kind of where you have to be in a given moment. Are you on the medical side? Are you on the emotional side? Yeah, it it is very hard. And like I said, I have not mastered it at all, but that, that is the privilege part. I think it's like so amazing to have a part of something that is so complex, right? Like you're at this, turning point in these people's lives and it could go great it could go sour you could not know how it's going to go and and all these varying emotions and I think that that's that's the privilege part for me you do have to kind of gauge like there are some families that will talk a little bit about the diagnosis but I'm not going to tell them every single thing that exists that we know about it because that's too much and some people really want all that information and that's okay and you just ask them that you say how much are you ready to hear right now or do you want to hear or how much do you want to talk about it or do you want to go home and process do you want five minutes to process you know mm-hmm. you just have them play it by where they are then you have families like me where I didn't want any more information but Michael was like yeah, let's, dive <laughs> let's dive yeah, in let's dive in yeah that was yeah that was um Hard, but I mean, that worked out. I tell some things to, well, I don't know that I tell things to Mike that I don't tell to you, but he gets like all the sciencey stuff that he wants. And then um, you and I were just like, mm, give him a good day. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I mean, so. and that, that too, I think is a tough place to be, but it also, you are working with you, what you got that you're helping the families, however they need. Right. 
Right. And no, no families. I mean, there are some families where they're both on the same page, but it's totally normal to not be on the same page. My husband and I are not on the same page about many things. <laughs> and just like men and women are different, they process things differently. They cope with things differently. And, and not, and even, I don't mean men and women because all families are, are a guy and a girl. I don't mean it that way, but you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Like all partnerships. I mean, I think <laughs> exactly, looking at me and Mike, the two of us, we match each other. We need somebody to be sciencey and somebody to be emotionally mm-hmm. driven mm-hmm. to make sure that the kids are getting everything they need. Mm-hmm. So, can we move to the sciencey side of your job? And can you, sure. what gets you going? What gets you excited? <laughs> what gets you, is it like when you crack something or when you find a new genetic mutation or something? Um, I don't even know if the, I mean, I love the science. Obviously, I find it fascinating. I find it mind blowing and I find it humbling. I don't know that that's what gets me going. Like, I really do. I love when we find out an answer to something, even if it's not great prognostically. I'm, my inner wanting to know things is pleased that we have solved the mystery. Obviously, the rewarding parts that keep me going are when families are appreciative or when you know that knowing the diagnosis heals things a bit for them. I also love being able to walk in a room and see a child and think, I know exactly what you have. <laughs> so let's yeah. talk about it. You know, that's, that's very, very rewarding. But again, that's sort of more of like a, what's the term? Uh, when you get Instant gratification. gratification. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, obviously I'm not an English major. <laughs> but that, that to me is very exciting. I do love the science of it. So part of what we do is, is terms just, dysmorphism, dysmorphology, and it's a sciencey term for people that look different. And this is kind of what I was getting at when I said there's there's nothing wrong with any of my patients. What I what I mean is there's not not something wrong from a medical perspective. I don't mean that. The way we use terms like disease, syndrome, mutation in our parlance implies so much negativity that it almost robs children of their worth. And so I don't like to use, I personally, just from pure personal whatever, I don't think that there's any mistake that's ever made when children look different when they have a bad disease. Not saying that it's, it's a rewarding process or that it's a good thing for the families, nothing like that. My inner dialogue is that they are just different and we're here to help people with that difference, whether that's the family, whether that's society, whether that's the patient, him or herself, you know, Everybody is worthy. And so it's hard because a lot, again, a lot, you know, you notice someone on the street and they clearly look like they have, I don't know, for example, Down syndrome even, right? You have preconceived notions about them. Society has preconceived notions about them, but there's nothing wrong that went into how they were made. Again, that's just my own personal opinion. No, that's beautiful. I love that. Because as moms, I feel like my kids ended up where they were supposed to be. They ended up exactly the way God planned them to be. It may not have been the path I would have picked for my family or what I envisioned for my future, but they are who they are. And mm-hmm. sure, there's things I would like to change. There's things I'd like to change about a lot of people, let's be real. Um, you know, I mean, it's comforting to hear a doctor say, like, if we can help you, that's what we're here to do. We we can't change this. This is who they are. And I think what you said was so simple yet hearing a doctor say it, I often feel like I'm straddling this line of like what the world and specialists, therapists, teachers 
are viewing and assessing my child as, and then what I think she was made for. And it's this like constant push and pull where you're like, okay, I, she's not worldly perfect. And then having this kind of seamless view of who she is and keeping that consistent as opposed to like kind of bouncing back and forth of, I need to advocate, but I need to accept she's imperfect, but she's perfect type of thing. Yeah. That's, yeah. And, and I think it's hard too, because the way we do it in medicine, right, is like you, we have them go to development. We see how behind they are with their milestones. We see what they're not doing instead of what they are doing. I still do that in the professional context of I have to figure out where someone is. Right. But the minute we do that, again, we take away from them. And it's just sort of, it, the whole thing is interesting to me, just kind of how we view disease and and again, this isn't to minimize that no one wants their child to suffer. I'm not saying that the suffering is like, great, <laughs> we should all suffer. But it's the semantics of it that have so many negative implications about the way we talk about things. I think, I think in general, genetics is getting better about verbiage. For example, if you read medical literature, really the trend now is to call a change in a gene a, a pathogenic variant, meaning it's a change that causes disease, but we don't call it a mutation because the mutation kind of makes you think of like the fish in the symptoms, right? Where they have like 12 eyes or whatever. Mm. And it just has a negative connotation to it. So it's just sort of interesting. Has there been any patient that's come in your practice that for either good or bad, the outcome you can't explain? That's a very broad question. But in terms of they should, you know, one plus one should equal two, but it's not. Oh, sure. That's like every kid. <laughs> I suppose when um, they don't have a... Yeah, certainly certainly when they don't have a diagnosis, that's one thing that's very frustrating for everybody. Even when you know the diagnosis and they don't take the path that you expect, no, no none of these, none of our children read any of these books and it's like, I'm going to make my body do this. Exactly. No one has any idea. But part of that is because the expectations that we have are created by humans, right? So all we do is look at trends, look at cohorts of people, look at what is average, look at what most people do. But that's kind of a retrospective view of it, right? So every child writes their own story. And we can look back and say, yeah, they did this, they did this, they didn't do this or whatever. And, and how does that fit into our little square shaped box of what we expect of them? But that's another thing that's taken me a while to, to realize is just to be very accepting and open-ended about what I expect from my patients, because they're going to do what they're going to do, no matter what I say, because I'm not that important. So being able to sort of, this is also frustrating, being able to say to a family, you know, I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know a lot of things about life but I especially don't know about what it's going to look like for your child. And I think that's probably, I got that sense from Mike the first couple of years that, you know, we knew each other. I just kept saying, I don't know the answer to that. And maybe someone will. It's hard to understand and hard to take in and hard to, because I mean, hell for us, we weren't even parents before Lorelai. So we don't even know what we're doing as far as parenting <laughs> goes. But yeah. then to try to understand all of this, and we heard from you, from every single doctor, the answer was always, we don't really know. And we always joked that that would be Lorelai's first words. And <laughs> it wasn't. She says, lay down to the dog. Um, <laughs> but really? she says, mama, dada, and lay down. Um, I think I because think we always, uh, we, we, we always yell, Olivia, lay down. Yeah, I know. And so <laughs> now Lorelai will say, mama, dada, and lay down. <laughs> 
<laughs> but beautiful. we always kind of joked that that we don't really know would be her first words because mm. you just hear it from every doctor and every, and it's just hard to understand what we don't really know means. I wish I knew what I don't know, but I don't. So, and, and some families are not okay with that. And that I totally get that, right. You don't want to hear a medical professional say, I don't know, but I'm not going to lie to you either. So yeah. Right. Can you see in a family when they finally can take that in and accept that as like, I just don't know. And can you, can you watch that in a family or sometimes? Yeah. It really depends on, on who it is and how often we talk. There are some families like Susan that I talk with all the time. There are some families that are more internal with their journey. And, you know, I offer myself to myself to them and our clinic, but they may need to process stuff on their own. So sometimes they come to that realization without me. Okay. What type of relationship do you have with a patient and family after they pass? Yeah. And especially when you know it may be a quick, like the prognosis is going to be very short. I've always thought of your job as, and I'm not trying to minimize, but I was a wedding planner before this. And I always kind of thought of you as the wedding coordinator, where you are the one who is, you're running the ship. But you also know that this doctor, this doctor, and this doctor, or something like Edmark or something like, you know, extra resources. And that's what you kind of call in or push families to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a wedding planner, so I think that's pretty badass of you to be that person in the medical <laughs> world. If the wedding goes well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't um, really know what the question is, but let's just talk no, about no. this. But- you're absolutely right. I sort of think of us as an umbrella, right? In that we we are at the sort of top of the food chain, coordinating the rest of the child's care, which is totally fine. I'm not insulted by that. Of the many, many sadly families that I've had who's who has had who have had a child die, it really is very different. Our relationship. Some of us, I, I have no relationships with some families because they've chosen for whatever reason, whether they were unhappy with the care, whether they just were at a place with the diagnosis, they couldn't, that they've not yet let go of the anger, you know, whatever. Obviously there's some where the relationship's broken off. Um, there's some where I still talk to this day. There was a, one of the first patients I took care of as a resident when I was an intern had cancer and she died probably four months into my intern year. And I, I still message her mother. I have her picture on my wall. It's just, you know, because um, she meant a lot to me, and I think about her all the time. So I have to say, this perspective is phenomenal because our geneticists, neurologists, they're all very open, and you know the messages like flow freely back and forth. But I tend to not go to them with like I tend to get lost in who do I ask what to, mm-hmm. and do they really? I mean, and I know it's a personal thing. Not I know they care. But am I kind of bugging them with information that should be addressed with the pediatrician, you know? Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like the continuity of care, like thankfully we're down at a hospital that is phenomenal, but we're an hour and 45 minutes away. So it, you know, I I find it really comforting to hear that, yeah, reach out to me anytime and you guys welcome that. And you're, um, you seem very open to being available to any and all questions, so that answers, I hope it answers questions for other people because that's really a huge thing for me is I tend to like, you know, not want to bother somebody with these questions. Yeah, I think probably every geneticist is different. They all run practices differently. Um, 
I heard a funny thing once that some people think we diagnose an audios <laughs> where you're like, Oh, you've <laughs> see ya, peace out, yo. But everybody does it differently. I probably, if I'm being honest, make myself too available, but I've you learned do. to set boundaries. You do. I do. I know. That's okay. But I've also, in the last, honestly, probably since meeting you and since, because when I met you, Susan, I was three and a half years into practice. I'm now eight, almost nine years into practice. So uh, things have changed, but I've been able to set my own personal boundaries, even though it seems like I'm always available. I may not respond to a text right away, or I may not respond to an email right away, depending on the urgency, obviously. But, but I want families to always know that we're here. And if we don't know the answer, we'll try and sort it out together. Cause that, I think that's my job. But again, people are, you know, everybody's different. And I think because you have um, genetic counselors on your team too, I think that that even more is a huge perk so that if families are like, I'm just lost and confused and I, you know, I got this diagnosis last month or last year Mm -hmm. and I'm working my way through processing what my future could look like, you and I would assume most genetic teams have counselors that are there to help support the families, whether that means reach out if you need extra, let's talk this through because you're starting to understand it because not many people go, okay, that's what my kid has. Let's move on. And it could be a year down the road when mom gets through her postpartum depression and anxiety that she's starting to process this, that Mm -hmm. her life is going to look different because this child of hers is not what she thought. And so having that team using the resource of having a genetics doctor and a genetic counselor should be a place where families and correct me if I'm overspeaking, but a place for families like Diane, if she's feeling concerned, she could reach out to that team and say, I want to let you know before I come in for my appointment, I'm extremely anxious. This is where my head is right now. And I need you to help me walk through this. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot emphasize enough how important genetic counselors are and they don't get nearly the amount of credit that they should, but they are because I don't have more than 24 hours in a day. But if I'm in the middle of clinic and someone calls the office sort of in a crisis, I have four outstanding genetic counselors. The likelihood is one of them probably can be there to take the call. And they're, again, outstanding in what they do. So yeah, we definitely can't can't function without them. And I think that that's part of what makes a great team is, is having that collaboration. I always feel like the time when you write those emails, I picture you guys being like, girlfriend, save it for your therapist. <laughs> like, Get your butt into your therapist. <laughs> you, know, you know, because I, honestly, like I have a thank God, healthy neurotypical daughter. I, I have a lot of crazy thoughts in my head. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we should all see a therapist. So I don't blame anybody. And I know that like, if I'm really tired or whatever, and I think, oh my gosh, another email from, I don't ever really think that if I do, I have to stop myself and say, this is where they're at. It's not my fault. Take the time when you have it and write a proper response. One of the things we talked about, you take care of patients with all sorts of diagnoses, and first of all, can you tell me what the plural of diagnosis is? Diagnoses. Diagnoses. I've wondered this yeah. for episodes. <laughs> and now <laughs> this episode has fixed it for you. We can <laughs> move on now. So, when, <laughs> so you, you take care of patients with all sorts of diagnoses <laughs> and folks who do not have a diagnosis. Right. But you also, in your own 
bubble of study. You have one specific disease that you focus on. And I'm bringing this up because a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Carissa, who yeah. you connected us with. Yeah. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about the one that you spend your time researching and helping? And Sure. So it's a it's a syndrome called Coffin-Cyrus syndrome. It's characterized by a number of various physical features and also varying levels of developmental and learning differences. What I do is I run a registry for the condition. So we have about 310 individuals from across the globe who are registered. Doesn't mean that those are all the people in the world who have the diagnosis. Right. But we look at, you know, growth development, medical issues that come up in these individuals to better prepare families and give clinicians a better idea of what to expect. I don't, I am not a bench scientist, so I don't have a lab with mice where I work, but I primarily do clinical research on it. And it's, um, it's connected me with the, with Carissa and with the Coffin-Cyrus Syndrome Foundation. And we've had a number of wonderful family conferences and these kids are just amazing and the families are amazing and it's just very very rewarding and exciting and I think that's great yeah. mm-hmm. yes Sammy we always like to ask what gives you hope I had to sit and think about this one for a while because um, I think there are two things if I'm allowed to answer two things so science gives me hope the fact that there are brilliant people in this world that work towards a better future for individuals with rare diseases I think always gives me the hope that not so much that there will be cures for everything, but that everyone in the world will have a better understanding of disease and and how different people are and things like that. And then um, I think my families give me hope because I see them encounter so many challenges that I lay in bed at night and think I could never in a hundred years endure what they're doing. And um, and they do. And I think that that sort of human resilience is, is amazing to me. And I hope that I hope that we can all sort of achieve that in our own lives in whatever way we need. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, it was such, such a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you guys. So excited. I think that that went really well for us having our first non-mom interview. I think that, you know, on the back end, we had some technology issues, but we got through it. And I'm just very thankful that Sammy gave her time to kind of help us and comfort us and tell us things that, I mean, you know, you have that nauseous feeling when you go see your geneticist. So do Mm -hmm. you feel any better now after talking to her? I feel so much better. It was really nice to just hear their perspective and what happens behind closed doors or the preparation before we enter in. It was just a really great perspective, something different and fresh. So it was nice. Yeah. And we do have a few more doctors coming up right now. I know we do have um, an intensivist and a pain management palliative care doctor. So be on the lookout. And again, thank you, Dr. Vergano, for spending some time with us and your very busy schedule. Absolutely. This is Susan, and I am going to go work on some embroidery because I'm a nerd and a grandma. Dear grandma, this is Diane, and I we're going to go hit the bowling lanes this afternoon with the kids. Ooh, you fun. Talk to you guys later. <laughs> Bye. We know you have so many choices on how to spend your time. Thank you so much for choosing to spend it with us. We would be honored to hear your unique, complicated, and hope-filled stories. We would love for you to connect with us and share your story on our website, www.whenautumncomes.com, and you can find us on social media at When Autumn Comes Podcast. 
Also, check us out at 4AM Mom Club, where we will be sharing our middle-of-the-night shenanigans, Etsy finds, Netflix faves, and other things to get us through. We would love for you to hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You'll continue to hear unique stories, feel a whole lot of comfort and connection, and hopefully share in a few laughs. We are new to the podcasting world, so this show is produced by yours truly. With hope and a whole lot of excitement, Diane and Susan. See you next time.